remember that we're talking about Elihu's first speech and how Elihu is responding to the arguments that Job has made. And the first argument Elihu took up was that God is unfair, and he disagrees with that and explains to Job why he disagrees. And then the second argument, based on what Job said, is that God does not answer prayer. And now Elihu is disagreeing with that statement, that God doesn't answer prayer. And two weeks ago, when we last met, we talked about his, the first part of that argument, which is that God speaks in ways that we're not really listening to sometimes. He speaks through, um, uh, he speaks through our conscience. He speaks through guilt and conviction of sin. He speaks through awareness of his presence and his moral law being written on our hearts. I realize I don't have the resource up here that I wanted. That's why I was confusing myself. And now he's going to take up the second part of that argument that says God doesn't speak. And he's going to disagree from the perspective of God speaks through pain. And this is one of the harder sections emotionally to think about because God speaking through suffering is not something that we want to, it's not something we want to be true. (laughs) We don't want God to have anything to do with suffering until you really think about where that would lead, which is a much darker place that God is either, uh, that God is completely removed from your suffering, either through indifference or or lack of power. And Elihu is going to say, God does answer prayer. God is speaking to us in many ways. And one of the ways he's speaking through us is, pain. Have many of you all read C.S. Lewis's book, The Problem of Pain? Really excellent. I'm not a huge Lewis fan, just his style of writing is, is not my thing. But he has a lot of important, meaningful things to say, so he's worth reading even if you find it difficult. And Problem of Pain, I think, is particularly worth reading. I think there's a lot of value in here. So let me read you a quote from that. It says, the human spirit will not even begin to try to surrender self-will as long as all seems to be well with it. Now, error and sin both have this property, that the deeper they are, the less their victim suspects they exist. They are masked evil. Pain is unmasked, unmistakable evil. Every man knows there is something wrong when he hurts We can rest contentedly in our sins, but pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So if you've heard the quote, pain is God's megaphone, That's where it comes from. That's the context. And I think the whole context is actually really important for that quote because he explains why it's such a megaphone. It can't be ignored. It cries out for an answer. And that's what Job's been doing for all these chapters, is crying out for an answer from his pain. Let's read. Let's let's start there. Let's read with the text. Um, Nick, can you read? We're in 33. 
Will you read 15 through 22? In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on men, while they slumber on their beds, then he opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings, that he may turn man aside from his deed and conceal pride from a man. He keeps back his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by disorder. Man is also rebuked with pain on his bed and with continual strife in his bones, so that his life loathes bread and his appetite the choicest food. His flesh is so wasted away that it cannot be seen, and his bones that were not seen stick out. His soul draws near the pit, and his life to those who bring death. Two ways God speaks. One is through conscience, conviction of sin, awareness that something isn't right with our behavior, whether that's through it, it, subconscious is the language of this. It uses the language of nightmares, but the specific idea is just you're at a subconscious level, which we would refer to as, as our conscience. But God also speaks through pain. Man is also rebuked with pain on his bed and with continual strife in his bones. Both of these are the voice of God. And uh, suffering can be remedial. We've, we've talked about how Job is not suffering in response to sin. But now we're starting to learn, as Elihu hits on it, and this is what God will drive home when God speaks, that Job is suffering in order to draw out sin that Job did not know was there so that God and Job can deal with that sin so that Job can walk even more closely with God. And Job is complaining that God, while Job is in pain, is silent, is not speaking. And Elihu's saying, you're missing it. He is speaking through the pain. He's speaking through the suffering. It has a purpose for you. And Elihu's annoyed that the other friends were not able to imagine this as a possibility in, their, uh, in the system, their perspective of the world. And so he's trying to clarify with Job that this well could be what's happening. We know it's true because Scripture says it, that suffering produces character. And we're all quick to say, well, I think most of you think, and then because I'm me, I say it out loud, I got enough character. <laughs> I don't want any more character. <laughs> you can keep your suffering. I got, just ask my friends, I got enough character for all of us. I don't need any more. And God is bringing about godly character, which I don't have enough of. <laughs> and so suffering is one of his tools for bringing that about. I think the most important thing we can ever understand about the Christian life is what is God's goal for us? Because no matter what we say, and no matter what at one level we believe, particularly when times are good, the reality is it creeps into all of us that God's goal for us should be for us to be happy. That's what we want God's goal for us to be, that God, that we would be happy. And then what happens is you go through life where there are all kinds of things that don't make you happy. And we try to look for all of these reasons why they happen, why they exist. 
But what it comes down to fundamentally always is that that is not God's goal. God's goal is not to make you happy now. God's goal is to make you perfectly like Jesus so that you can be happy for eternity. And yes, God could choose to snap his finger, make you perfectly like Jesus, and be done. He doesn't. He doesn't think that's best. Why not? I don't know. That's too far, too far into the mind of God for me. When you get into why God chose A and not B, other than this is better, I I, I have no answer for you. But I can tell you as a fact that this suffering happened because without it, you would be less like Jesus. If you belong to Christ, that is making you more like Christ identifying more and more with him, not just in the experience of suffering, though that's part of it, but in the effect of suffering, which is to change us, to actually change us. And how, I mean, I hope we will be honest enough with ourselves to admit the status quo doesn't change us. When everything is as it was and things are going along just fine, How many of us are sitting at our desks with legal pads filling up with ideas about how God's going to make us more and more holy? I don't think you're doing a lot of that. I'm not doing a lot of that. And so God is disruptive, as we've been reading about in Isaiah, as he's been telling the people of Judah, God is disruptive in our world. He's making a mess in that sense of the order we would like to see in the world because the status quo isn't going to make us more like Christ. Questions about that? Well, I want to read a hopeful part here in a second and not just leave it on that. But. Okay, well, I was going to say, <laughs> amen to that. Don't we also have to hold the tension of because our affections are rightly ordered and changed, becoming more like Jesus leads to... like. It sounds fairly dour that God's only goal is to make us holy as if it's a punishing, painful thing all the time. Right. Where we live in that tension of becoming more like Christ for one whose affections have been changed leads to joy. And, and it's, it's very difficult in real time to believe it based on your experience. Because what you experience in real time in this fallen, broken sin-stained world, this present evil age where there are enemies of God everywhere. What, it, what you experience in real time is the more you try to be like Jesus, the more difficult your life is, the more in conflict it is with the world and, and with, with your experience. And it would be a lot easier just to go along to get along, to do things the way the world does and have at least those less pain points in your life. But that's because the world is broken. And what we're supposed to remember, what God is teaching us in Christ, is that he made it. That's why the New Testament emphasizes so much all things were made through him. And then it repeats, just in case you missed it, 
There was nothing that was made that was not made this way. All of it. So when he tells you this is how to live the right way, not just the good way, the, the orderly way, the way that is in line with the universe as it actually is, and we say, oh, it doesn't seem like the universe as it actually is. And he said, trust me, I made it. And if you will do it the way that I am telling you to do it, you will be amazed at how much better life is. And we say, no, it makes it worse. It makes it harder. It makes... And he says, you're missing it. Trust the one who made it all. And that's the tension that we live in, is we're pretty short-sighted of the immediate difficulty it would create to be more like Christ. It is harder to treat your spouse well than to be selfish. It is harder to raise your children in the discipline and admonition of the Lord than it is to be their friend and let them do whatever they want to do. It is harder to work as unto the Lord and not rob your employer. It is harder. You you see how we could keep doing this? And that's about as far as we see sometimes. Oh, it's harder. And God says, you've got to look past that. You've got to look through the harder to the fact that you will be walking with me the one who made it all and is telling you, if you do it this way, there is blessing. Not simply in the world that is to come, which that's not a good biblical approach either of, you know, no good things are going to happen here. Glory is the only happy moment we'll have. No, no, no. God gives good gifts to his children in between. But he also gives us pain and he also speaks through suffering because we will tend to focus on the good gift as an end unto itself. We will tend to focus on the suffering as an end unto itself. And he's focusing on making us like Jesus, which has the end of life with him in glory. And, and we've just got to get out of that myopic view. And that's what Job does here that's so wrong. At the beginning, Job speaks such grandiose praises of God. He sees the big picture, even in his suffering. I mean, how, how much more can you see the big picture than to say, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. That's about as big picture as a human being is capable of being. But now notice as the chapters wear on, the big picture is less and less common. And we start to get more and more narrow. And what happens to human beings when we get more and more narrow? We see God less and less. It really is about our circumstances. It really is about me. Yeah, it's about what's unfair and unjust and what isn't right. And that's where Job's going to go awry here in his argument. And he's going to have to be corrected. Jesus is transforming us into our Savior. Karen, can you go to the book of Hebrews? Uh, Noah, can you go to the book of Romans? Hebrews 12, Romans 5. Kate, will you go to James? James 1. Hebrews 12, Romans 5, James 1. Uh, Karen, verses 5 through 11. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? 
My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So this is specifically talking about discipline, which is one category of suffering. And when we say similar things to our children, do they like what we're saying? No. I do this because I love you. doesn't make anybody feel any better. But is what we're saying true? And when God says this to us, do we like what he's saying? No. But is what he's saying true? Our biggest fear should not be that God would send suffering into our lives. Our biggest fear would be Romans 1, that God just gives us over to ourselves and doesn't even try to make us like Christ. That's scary. I'm I'm not (laughs) pro-suffering. But if you make me pick between suffering that will make me more like Christ or God giving me over to myself, And leaving me on the day of judgment to fend for myself. It's it's not even a contest. How about Romans 5, 3 through 5? Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And James 1, 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to you. So which argument would you like to take issue with first? Should we argue that Paul doesn't understand the depths of our suffering or that James doesn't understand the depths of our suffering? Who do we want to start with? No takers? They're not minimizing your pain. They're not minimizing your suffering. They see something by the Spirit that we struggle to see And that they are inviting us to see with them. They're exhorting us on in our pain. They're not trivializing it or minimizing it. They're exhorting us on in our pain to see past it. See what it produces. See what it says about God's love for us. See what it will make us into. That's what they're calling us to do. And so for Job to claim that God is silent with regards to suffering... I mean, a lie whose head's about to explode. What are you talking about? It's a megaphone, Job. It's not a busy signal. It's a megaphone. Now, uh, questions, comments on that? That was great. 
You got some thoughts? <laughs> it, this teething is suffering. Do they know what a busy signal is? <laughs> no. A world without call waiting is not one they've ever experienced. <laughs> um, man, we're... Mm, no? You're... In verses 15 and 16, he speaks about the way God speaks sort of unpleasantly in this nightmares. But then in 17 and 18, he speaks about the gracious way that God will rescue. And then in 19 through 22, he speaks about the challenging, troubling way that God speaks through suffering. But he doesn't leave us there. Renee, can you read... This is Job 33. Can you read 23 to 28? If there be for him an angel, a mediator, one of the thousands, to declare to man what is right for him, and he is merciful to him and says, Deliver him from going down into the pit. I have found a ransom. Let his flesh become fresh with youth. Let him return to the days of his youthful vigor. Then man prays to God, and he accepts him. He sees his face with a shout of joy, and he restores to man his righteousness. He sings before men and says, I sinned and perverted what was right, and it was not repaid to me. He has redeemed my soul from going down into the pit, and my life shall look upon the light. How does the rescue begin? We're introduced to a new character. Who is it? messenger of God, a mediator. Isn't that right in line with what did Job ask for back in chapter 9 and chapter 16 and chapter 19? He asked for a mediator. He wants his day with God in court, but in his more lucid moments, he recognizes that's not going to go well for him because even though he's blameless, God is still God and he's not and he needs a mediator, an advocate, one who will speak up for the sufferer in the court of heaven. When you suffer and you are trying to comfort yourself with the word of God, with good theology, I hope one of the thoughts that comes to your mind very quickly is God's promise that you have an advocate at that moment in his very courts, interceding for you. Job's argument is that God is silent. And yet here is the advocate in the throne room of heaven, advocating, speaking up for, speaking on behalf of, pleading the case of Job. Absolutely incredible. So the result of this Um, as this mediator speaks up, is that he will be rescued from the pit. Now, I think it's really interesting that this promise, this is verses 24 and 25, and that he'll ransom him from danger. I think it's really interesting that this promise comes here because we are a long way away from Job experiencing relief from the pit. And Yet this advocacy is happening in the throne room of heaven for which the outcome is certain. And that's the tension in which we pray about relief from our suffering. 
we can pray to be relieved from it. When we are at our best, we will pray that we will uh, understand what God is teaching us, saying to us, what he's shouting through his megaphone quickly so that we can be relieved from it. That's, that's all good. But even in our darkest experiential moment, our mustard seed of faith is to remember that our advocate's prayers on our behalf will not fail. We will be freed from the pit. We will be relieved of this because a ransom has been paid for us, a substitute to save us from danger. And it's the, I mean, this is where if, if, you, if you try to think about uh, just different ways of looking at the gospel, it's absolutely incredible that this debt is owed. The ransom is paid, but the ransom is not dollars. It's not that Jesus traded part of his kingdom and said, all right, Satan, give me back my prisoners and here you can have Memphis. Uh, he, I don't know why I picked Memphis. <laughs> See what you did there. What, what does Jesus use to pay the ransom? Himself. Himself. It's the, I said I don't like Lewis. And yet, uh, what Aslan does is just the most beautiful literary picture of this. As people watch on and cannot even contemplate the deal that he is brokering with the white witch. They do not even have a category for what's being offered here. And that's what's happening here. The advocate interceding on our behalf is offering himself up. And we see that play out on the stage of history in Christ going to the cross. But you've got to understand that that theologically... uh, insert lots of other big words about the way this is happening. It's been in all eternity. In all eternity, the Son has been presenting himself to the Father as an advocate and a sacrifice for his people. That's why it's so important that we reject theological views that God doesn't know the end from the beginning and didn't ordain the end from the beginning and has to react to what we do. Because it's not like Jesus shows up on the scene and says, oh man, you guys really made a mess. I guess I'm going to have to sacrifice myself for your good. From eternity past, the Son has always been presenting himself before the Father as a ransom for his people. And so in the moment of our deepest suffering, it's no different at that moment. It's no different. The posture of the Son is one of giving himself for us, advocating for us, even though the work itself is complete, which is why we can be sure we will be freed from the pit and that his request will be effective. The result of this is verses 26 through 28, a prayer, reconciliation with God, a shout of joy. But what else? What a, this is such a, Job's really, God, through Job, is really tipping his hand to the gospel here. What else is present in verse 26 that is a result of all of this? I said a prayer, reconciliation with God, shout with joy. There's one other word there that should sort of surprise you. 
restores a man to his. Well, what is that? That's justification. Job wants to stand in front of God actually blameless. He can do that because this mediator comes and makes this sacrifice, this great uh, exchange. And of all the things that Job will gain from this, one of them is actual righteousness. He will be justified in his standing before God. Uh, There is... It is hard to find. There are lots of them in the Old Testament that are equally clear. It is hard to find a more clear articulation of the gospel and how God will save his people than in Job 33. He's in a pit. He's pleading his own righteousness. It's not enough. He needs a mediator. The mediator makes this exchange before God and gives him actual righteousness before God that leads to everlasting joy in a song of praise. What, what, does, do we need to spell it out for you somewhere? Do we need maybe colored highlighters? Who was it who said recently that the, we should unchain ourselves from the Old Testament? Doesn't have, doesn't have anything to say for us. Read your Bibles. Read your Bibles. Good grief. If you, how much? Whew, everything except the name Jesus. Everything is there. Questions about what happens there, and then we'll kind of wrap up this Elihu speech. This is one of the tricky parts about um, the, the, the word gospel and the the facts of substitutionary atonement, how God saved us. Some of us have been in context where, believe it or not, that is overused. (laughs) Uh, not, Not overused in that you could ever talk about the gospel too much, but overused in the sense of reflecting on that truth becomes the only thing you do in the Christian life. You never think about, well, then what does it mean to walk with Christ in the light of that redemption? I've been saved for what? I've been saved for life with God. What does life with God look like? Well, that's a very valid question. And so you don't want to spend a whole lot of time uh, under teaching that fails to tell you what life with God looks like now that you've been redeemed. You don't want to spend any time in a place that tells you that walking with God is what will save you, that's death. But it's unhelpful to be in a place that just stops at, you've been given life with God, can't wait to heaven. So I'm, I'm very sensitive to that, as, as many of you know. And yet, when we suffer, when we're in pain, there is nothing trivial about reflecting on the gospel, on what Elihu says here. You have to play out the steps. The advocate pleading my case with absolute certainty that I will be freed from the pit for no reason other than his love for me, 
not because of anything of my own doing or the work of my own hands. I'm fully accepted. Job, with his self-righteousness, is fully accepted, forgiven by God. Wow. That, that must be a part of our mental coping with suffering. It's never trivial to return to the facts of the gospel. Now, my encouragement to you, when, when you're in the darkest place, that's probably as far as you can get. God is glorified because you are proclaiming to yourself his glory. Whenever we talk about the gospel, we are glorifying God. We're going to hear in Isaiah today. God's not needy like the way we're needy. So this is not very precise language. But God does want to be known. He desires to be known. God wants a reputation in the world that he's made. And the reputation God says he wants is a savior of the world. That's how God wants to be known. So every single time we remember that he is savior, we are glorifying God in the way that he most wants to be glorified, which is to be known as that savior. So in the darkest times of the pit, that's probably as far as we could go. And we don't need to be ashamed by that. We are glorifying God with our lives in our suffering simply by hanging on to that one thread of remembrance that he is our redeemer. Never feel bad about that. When we're not in that darkest place, that's when I'm saying, why stop there? (laughs) Why not use that remembrance, that thread as a springboard to, well, then how will I walk with him in this? How will I tell others about this God? How will I bless others because this God has blessed me? That's the walking life with God part. But don't, don't, again, imprecise language. Don't worry about it when you can't. Hang on to the thread that is the gospel. And trust God that no one No one hangs onto that thread and stays the same. It just doesn't happen. That's the whole James faith works argument. And the, the, you know, Paul makes a similar case of just don't worry about it. These people who say they're going to keep on sending. So they're going to, they haven't held onto the thread. They don't actually have the power of God, the spirit at work within them. Because when the power of God through his spirit is at work, nobody stays the same. And you say, well, I know people who stay the same and never change. Grasp the thread tighter. Pull the thread more. I don't know how to mix the metaphor here. Um, You don't need more law. If you're struggling to walk with God, if you're struggling in faithfulness in times of suffering, you don't need more tips on how to walk with God. That's more law. I don't mean that in a bad way. Law is a reflection of God's character, but it won't help you. You need more gospel. You need more grace. You need more of that thread. (laughs) You need to see the beauty of his power and glory. And he will do the rest. God, I've seen so many times where he hasn't. Maybe. Scripture says you haven't. So I don't know what the other facts of that scenario are. 
but scripture says you haven't. <laughs> so I'm going to go with that. I'm going to trust God's word over my subjective experience. So Elihu concludes that God does speak. He just speaks in ways that we don't like to listen to. He speaks through the misery of a guilty conscience. It's not good to feel guilty unless that guilt exposes our sin and drives us to the feet of the Savior. And then it was pretty good to feel guilty. But it didn't feel good when we were feeling it. Or maybe God speaks through the pain of suffering. We like that even less, especially in a case like Job's, where it's not discipline, it's instruction. Teach me another way, Lord. But God's goal, this is from Ash's book, repeatedly, God does so, this type of speaking, repeatedly and persistently with the goal of rescuing people from the pit and giving them the light of life. Always both and. Back to our just discussion we just had. He's not just rescuing from the, you from the pit. He's taking you from there to somewhere else. I was like, Did you see all that spit? It's very impressive. He's taking you from there to somewhere else, from the pit to the light of life and walking with him. And so Job is wrong when he accuses God of not speaking. And Job says, my sufferings prove that God is not speaking. And Elihu says, no. It's exactly these sufferings that are the voice of God speaking to you. Kathy, can you read 31 through 33? Pay attention, O Job. Listen to me. Be silent and I will speak. If you have any words, answer me. Speak, for I desire to justify you. If not, listen to me. Be silent and I will teach you wisdom. You got to listen to the prophet. <laughs> You've got to listen to the voice of God when God speaks. And this morning's sermon was a tough one for me in terms of writing it. Because on the one hand, I'm trying to say, I'm trying to say what Isaiah is saying, but I'm going to put it in first person. On the one hand, I'm trying to say, stop looking at worship as a thing you have to do. Stop looking at worship as boxes to check or an obligation to meet or a debt to pay back. Start looking at worship as an opportunity where God is offering you something. He's inviting you to himself and offering you something. And when you fail to worship, you shouldn't think of it as oh, I need a slap on the wrist. I have broken one of God's rules because I failed to worship. You should think of it as, man, I missed out on something God was offering to me. So that's what I'm trying to say in the sermon. But it sounds a lot meaner in my manuscript. So y'all just know that I don't mean it in the mean way. I mean it in the friendly way. Because the, the mean edge to it is we grumble a fair amount about what God is doing or not doing in our lives. All of us grumble a fair amount about what God's doing or not doing. And many of us, and God be praised if you're an exception right now, many of us are not 
availing ourselves of what God is offering. The prophet speaks. We have access to these scriptures every single day. Where do they rank in our priorities? And again, that's why I'm saying it's tension because I don't want to be scoldy, but it's like, uh, it's like if somebody has a kid who needs to be healed of a particular ailment and the doctor and the parents have made it incredibly clear, here's the thing you need to do to feel better. And instead you sit there and complain that it doesn't feel good. <laughs> again, I don't want to scold. But I was scolding myself this week because the amount of time that I spend in Scripture, apart from teaching preparation, and I spend a lot of time in Scripture in teaching preparation. And that's been my excuse for a long time. And then this week, I'm reading this and I'm thinking, so? <laughs> the prophet is speaking, not just to the congregation through you, but to you. Are you listening? Are you availing yourself of what God is offering as an individual, not enough, not enough. When we fail to worship, we're not availing ourselves of something that God is offering. And so Elihu says to Job, you've got to listen. Elihu, uh, Pam said last week, you know, Elihu gets this bad rap for being a young fire-breathing, angry preacher, and yet he should get a lot of credit as well for coming alongside of Job and really being with him in an understanding way in this suffering. God's come alongside us. He comes alongside us in worship. He comes alongside us in his word, and he offers us so much. And we don't avail ourselves of it. And then we grumble about what God is doing or not doing in our lives. And it's not as though God's saying, you ought to be ashamed of yourself for doing that. God says, what a shame that you're doing that. You're missing out. And that's the way we're supposed to feel when we hear texts like this. I, I should have found a way to put this in the sermon better, so I'm glad I'm having a chance to unpack it a little bit because you shouldn't hear these things as you need to worship better or you stink. It's, hey, you know those things you feel like your life is missing? You know those things you feel like you're not quite equipped or adequate for? God's offering you the grace for those things in worship, in his word, in his presence. Wouldn't you like to experience that? It's such a gentle offer. And so even in this moment where Elihu is coming to dismantle Job's arguments, I mean, Job's argument is, Nobody likes me. Everybody hates me. Nobody understands me. Why don't I just eat worms? That's Job's argument. And Elihu comes along and says, oh, brother. Now, he says it with some passion in his voice because it's important stuff. And I think most of his anger is directed at Job's friends. It's very discouraging to be a young man 
in the presence of old men who won't do the right thing. And so he speaks up. And it's fire breathing. But the content is, oh, Job, God understands you. God is speaking to you. He is advocating for you. And you will be redeemed from the pit. And this pain, this experience of suffering, is God's reinforcing work in our lives. It's his transforming work in our lives to try to get us to focus on what we ought to be. To refocus, I use the word reorient a lot. Because I think our lives get disoriented. We, we have the list of priorities from God, and then we kind of muddle up the list and monkey around with it and move some things up and move some things down and then wonder why life isn't working the way we want it to work. It's another great advantage of worship because we all do that. Every one of us does that. Every single one of us spent this week monkeying with the list of God's priorities of what should be the case in our lives. And the one of the main points of what we're doing in worship is God reorienting us to the correct list of priorities. And that's why you've probably noticed if you miss worship one Sunday, you know, you miss something, but it's, you know, it, it happens to all of us from time to time. No big deal. I think for many of us, when we've missed worship two Sundays in a row, and we're not talking about three calendar weeks between that reorientation, that reordering of the list, I get all messed up. I, I just, uh, <laughs> Paul's priorities are top of the list. And God is somewhere bottom middle. Middle bottom, bottom bottom. <laughs> we need that. We need that reorientation. Worship is not the only thing that can do it. We can do it with prayer and scripture and personal devotion. But worship is what God has ordained for this weekly on the calendar. That's why he talks about Sabbath the way he talks about it. It's not so he can give you one more rule you have to follow that you feel really bad if you break. It's because God made us and the one who made us knows that a pattern of six and one is what we can take. (laughs) Six days where he is the center guiding us through the rest of life and one day where he's just the center, period. That's what we can handle. That's why he set it up that way. And again, when we blow it, this is language that will come later in Isaiah, God doesn't say, I can't believe you guys are messing up my Sabbath. You're so bad. You're so mean. You're so dumb. What does Isaiah say about the Sabbath? If you'll turn your foot aside from going your own way on the Sabbath, from making it just seven days the same, if you will turn your foot aside from going your own way and make my holy Sabbath an obligation. No, wait, what does that verse say? A delight. Make my Sabbath a delight. Then you will have checked the boxes and met God's obligations. Wait, no. How does that verse end? You will ride as though on the clouds of heaven. That's how God looks at this stuff. And it's, it, it's hard for Job to see it where he is. And God is so gracious to come alongside Job and now offer Elihu, who's not perfect by any means, but Elihu who's going to try to reorient Job toward God. 
No, Job's going to double down on his self-righteousness and God's going to have to come sort this, sort this thing out. And I think part of the advantage of us having Job in our canon is that Job's not condemned for his behavior here. Job's righteous at the beginning, righteous at the end. But don't you see lots of off-ramps in Job for you when you're in that suffering and you need to get reoriented toward God? Don't you see lots of off-ramps where you could listen to some of Job's speeches, where you can listen to Elihu, where you don't have to be confronted face-to-face with an angry and offended God because you have declared yourself to be undeserving of anything bad that ever happens to you? If you get there, God will deal with you. He deals with you, us in his word. It's fine. But there are actually off-ramps for us before that. Where living through Job's story, we can see a better way, a better response. We can see even the part that Job was lacking. And in a minute, the parts that Elihu were lacking.